Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be investigating the shape of memories, plus the tabletop physicists looking for cracks in prevailing theory. We'll also be finding out about the effects that armed conflict has on wildlife. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Right then, wow, here we are, the first show of 2018, and uh, I'm very excited to be here. Adam, how are you doing? I feel a bit like I'm living in the future every new year. Another number. It should be something I'm used to now. It's happened to me 29 times, but every single time I feel like I've been transported into a distant time. Well, Adam, you and I are actually both time travellers, but sadly ours is in a linear direction at a uniform speed. Well, I suppose it changes slightly as our altitude and velocity relative to the Earth changes. Oh, here we go. Right. Anyway, Happy New Year, listeners. I hope you're having a good time. There's only 355 days of science left. Let's get started. First up this year, we have a story all about... Go on. Uh, well, I don't think I can remember. I mean, I've got nothing. No, I, I seem to have forgotten. So uh, I know it's being presented by Shamli Bundell. So hopefully she can shed some light on it. So there's a feature out in Nature this week about memory. It asks, what does a single memory look like? Where is it stored in the brain? Which cells are involved? And what determines its particular shape? I got in touch with a neuroscientist who's working to answer these questions, Sheena Jocelyn. I first asked her how scientists define a memory. Everybody has their sort of colloquial definition. And I think we can probably all agree that it's some sort of representation in the brain of a past event or some sort of past learning that we can recall at a later point. And when people first were sort of studying memory, they were like, right, where is the memory section of the brain? That must be where the memories are stored. Um, but we've, we've since come to understand that memories are sort of more distributed across different brain areas. We're certainly not saying that there's like one specific cell that stores a memory, the grandmother cell. You know, you stimulate this cell and there's an image of your grandmother. Um, we, we now, as a field, I think, appreciate that memories are widely distributed in groups or ensembles of neurons that come together and, for whatever reason, the, these, these cells seem to be chosen and not other cells and they form a memory. 
And, and if there's no, you know, one cell, we can't identify the cell for a memory, how would we go about finding out which, I guess, multiple cells or multiple areas are involved in any given memory? We're still at the sort of inference game. We infer that a cell or a brain region is important in a memory if we get someone to recall this memory and we see this brain area very active. So if you're looking at human memory, you put someone in an fMR scanner and you ask them to recall a memory and those places that are more active, they have, you know, stronger blood flow, those are thought to be the ones that are really important in sort of retrieving this memory and probably really important in housing this memory. We do the same kind of experiments in experimental animals in the lab. So you have this vague idea that there is an association there with this memory and these particular cells, but how can you actually sort of test whether, whether you're right about that? So we can ask what happens if we manipulate the activities of these cells when we ask mice to recall a memory, and what happens if we decrease their activity? Can they still recall the memory? So we go in and we can kill just these cells we think are really important in the memory, and we ask the mouse to recall a memory. The mouse shows us no evidence of recall. It's as if the memory has been erased. How do you know if a mouse is remembering something or not? Yeah, that's, that's a, a question that we spend a lot of time in the lab discussing. And the only thing that we can do is we look at their behavior. So when a mouse is afraid, it shows this um, fear response, so it adopts this crouched motionless posture. So what we do in the lab is we pair um, an innocuous stimulus, such as a tone or a place, with a tiny electric foot shock. Now, it's not enough to cause the animals any sort of damage, but it's enough for the mouse to say, what the huh? And the cool thing is that we can test memory by saying, well, the next time you hear this tone that we previously paired with the shock, do you show fear responses? And then the next step is to see if you can stop them remembering the association. Absolutely. So what happens if we perturb the function of this small population of cells? Do mice show us this freezing response? Do they remember? And it turns out that no, they don't. So it's like we're sort of turning off the memory. And the cool thing is, it has to be these cells we perturb the function of. If we perturb the function of a bunch of other cells, we don't see this. So it's really specific. So getting rid of the memory is one way to prove that you've kind of got the right cells, you've found the cells for that memory. Um, But then there's also experiments on activating recall of an existing memory. I mean, you can always argue that there's multiple ways of decreasing a memory. But to actually bring a memory sort of out of the air, to have the animal bring to mind a memory without giving it an external retrieval cue, so in this case the tone, what we can do is just give it an internal retrieval cue. We artificially activate these cells. It's like we're bringing to mind this memory because the mouse freezes. So it's like we're cutting out the middleman, going directly to those areas of the brain we think are important in the memory. We cause the mouse to remember this memory, and they show us this by freezing. It's amazing that this uh, um, experiment worked and that it's been replicated so many different times. And, I mean, it's just really cool that you're you're able to manipulate memories like that. But is manipulating memories, either activating it or getting rid of it, is that actually the point of the research? I don't think that anyone is in this business to sort of cosmetically change memories. What we really want to do is understand how memories are formed in the brain for two reasons. One, it's a really cool question. Our brains are sort of like the final frontier of science. It really tells us who we are and how we process information, how we encode information, is getting at understanding the brain at a very fundamental level. But it's also really important because there's an epidemic of memory disorders in the world. Everything from Alzheimer's to autism, which you can sort of phrase as being an information processing disorder. But the treatments 
are really lacking because we don't understand how memories are normally made. So your your work is mainly on on mice, but the research that's going on in humans is actually kind of um, backing up a lot of what you found. The fundamental things about how memories are encoded is really similar between mice and humans in the lab. And to me, if we get really converging evidence from two very different species doing very different tasks, yet the same answers still keep coming up, that is really exciting to me. It tells me that we're really on to something here. That was Sheena Jocelyn from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, talking to Sharmini Bundell. A lot of the work that Sheena mentioned, both from her lab and others, is described in a feature over at nature.com news, so go over there to give it a read, if you remember. Still to come in the research highlights, how a digestive discovery has identified a new lizard and how demographics affect carbon dioxide emissions. Many animals across the globe are under threat from man-made causes, climate change or habitat destruction, to name just two. This week in Nature, there's a new paper that looks at a threat to wildlife that's not so well understood. Entitled Warfare and Wildlife Declines in Africa's Protected Areas, this work looks at how conflicts has affected populations of large mammals, like zebras, wildebeest or elephants. I spoke to Josh Daskin from Yale University, one of the authors of the paper, and began by asking him why he focused on African mammals and why this research area in particular. Africa has really the last standing intact assemblages of large wildlife, particularly large mammals, Uh, and they have uh, large roles to play in ecosystems where they exist. Uh, In addition, there are large benefits for uh, local communities through tourism and other revenue that comes in due to wildlife. Um, And so that's why they're important. Uh, And we focused on the impact of war because war has been unfortunately common and there are a number of pathways by which conflict can impact wildlife populations. When I looked at your paper in, in, and, and looked at the title, I guess I kind of assumed, maybe rather naively, that, that armed conflicts would, of course, you know, have a negative impact on local wildlife. But you suggest that there isn't or wasn't maybe really a consensus about the relationship between warfare and its effects on biodiversity. And it, and it could have actually been maybe positive or negative in different areas. Intuitively, yeah, you would think that war is not necessarily a good thing for the environment in general or for wildlife in particular. And there are good examples of this uh, from Africa where there are cases of militias uh, or other armed organizations funding some of their activities through the sale of ivory poached from elephants. But there are also cases in Africa and elsewhere uh, where the onset of conflict can create a de facto refuge for wildlife um, and for biodiversity in general. The sort of classic example of this outside of Africa would be the demilitarized zone in Korea, which for several decades has acted as a as a really a park and protected quite a bit of wildlife there. Um, and you could also have things like the, the closing down of bushmeat trade routes or the reduction in extractive industries like logging that would otherwise harm wildlife populations during times of conflict if it becomes too dangerous for companies or traders to operate. So maybe this is where your work comes in then, trying to better understand this relationship. And you've gone back kind of a fair way, you know, back in history, all the way from 1946 to data from 2010. We collected data from about 500 uh, existing published estimates of uh, mammal populations and then paired these in order to calculate population trajectories. Um, And once we had these population trajectories for each species, in each protected area, we could map these onto an existing database of where each of the conflicts have occurred uh, throughout time in Africa. Um, And we can suss out what exactly the impact of uh, conflict is on these mammal populations. 
So what impact does conflict have then? The, the result was really quite striking and clear that as the frequency of conflict increases, the performance of mammal populations declines. So at peaceful sites, the average population trajectory was replacement. Populations were neither increasing nor decreasing. But with the onset of just a little bit of conflict, the average population was declining. Uh, at the sites with the highest conflict frequencies, there were really no populations that we found data for where mammal populations were increasing. I would also say, though, that the news is not all bad. We did find that there were very few outright extinctions in the data set. So although populations declined in areas where war has been common, there's quite a bit of potential for recovery and restoration of these populations because they're not completely blinking out. So the word that maybe stuck out to me here as well, I think you mentioned it's the frequency of conflicts, not necessarily the intensity of conflict that makes so much of a difference. Right, exactly. So we included a number of predictors, including both the frequency and intensity of conflict, to see which of these would affect wildlife populations and how. As you said, the frequency of conflict was the best predictor, whereas the intensity of conflict, the number of human deaths, did not predict wildlife population trajectories. We might infer from this that it's actually just the onset of conflict that has the greatest impact on wildlife. And one possible reason for this is that Wars, of course, come with lots of correlates of their own. Uh, so increased human poverty, decreased ability of governments to perform non-military functions, either because their abilities actually decline or because their priorities lie elsewhere. Uh, and so it may simply be that the onset of conflict, regardless of how intense it is in a military sense uh, or in a human sense, is enough to impact wildlife. And if we throw it back to our sort of earlier chat then, say if there wasn't a consensus one way or the other about how warfare or conflicts affects biodiversity, it seems like here you've at least begun to shine a light on you know, how it may affect it. I mean, how do you hope that this research is used in the future? One of the motivations for conducting this study was that there was very little synthetic information on how conflict affects any aspect of biodiversity. And yet, Conservation organizations, including big funders like the World Wildlife Fund, Wildlife Conservation Society, foreign aid organizations like the U.S. Agency for International Development, all of these groups need concrete evidence for where to invest their funds. Well, finally then, Josh, if there is the potential for populations to recover in areas after conflicts, do you have any examples of where they have or, or where good practices have been put into place? Maybe the best example today is a place where I've been doing fieldwork since 2012. Uh, it's called Gorongosa National Park, and it's the flagship national park in Mozambique, which is in Southeast Africa. Uh, and Mozambique suffered through a, an intense civil war from 1977 to 1992, during which time the park, Gorongosa, was the headquarters at different times for both the rebel army and the government soldiers. And the, the wildlife populations in the park suffered immensely. Uh, so whereas before the war, the park was home to tens of thousands of all the iconic African wildlife species that you normally think of, well over 95% of the individual animals were killed during the war. So they were down to single digit zebra. Elephants were down to about 200 individuals from several thousand. Across the board, everything declined. However, an intensive restoration effort has been funded since 2004, and there's been an incredible population recovery uh, wildlife populations are back near their levels uh, from before the conflict. That was Josh Daskin. You can read his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. To 
kickstart the new year, we've got a special news chat this week. We'll be gazing into a crystal ball to predict some of the big science stories that you may be able to expect from 2018. That's at the end of the show, but right now we're joined again by Sharmini for this week's research highlights. Paleontologists have made a dazzling discovery in a dinosaur's dinner. A chicken-sized dino dug up in the 19th century was known for some time to contain a small reptile in its gut. Researchers have taken a closer look at this unlucky lizard and found that its skull anatomy doesn't match any other specimens, suggesting that this creature within a creature is a brand new species. The lizard has been named Shonesmal dyspepsia, which roughly translates to beautiful meal that is difficult to digest. Chew over that research in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. How does getting married affect your carbon footprint? Any big life transition changes how you spend your time, which in turn affects how much energy you use. But it's proven rather tricky to put a number on these impacts. Now, researchers have studied the effects of two big shifts in Chinese society. The increase in one- or two-person households and the increase in people over 65 years old. In Sichuan, a province with over 80 million people, these demographic shifts may lead to an extra 35 million tonnes of carbon dioxide in 2030. Have a peep at that paper in Nature Energy. The Standard Model is one of the crowning achievements of modern physics. From its description of the fundamental properties of matter to its prediction of new particles like the Higgs boson, it's hard to think of a theory that has been so thoroughly demonstrated to be correct. Except it isn't correct. Because for all its accuracy, there are some little things that it misses out. So, you know, most of the energy and mass of the universe, it can't explain uh, inflation, it can't explain uh, why the universe is made out of matter rather than antimatter, it can't explain. These are not little things. This is Gerald Gabriels. Physicists like Gerald are on the hunt for theories beyond the standard model that could explain these not little things. But where to look? One approach is to search for exotic new particles not predicted by the standard model. This is what huge experiments like the Large Hadron Collider are doing. But another approach is to make painstakingly careful measurements of the properties of everyday particles, like electrons. Any deviation from the standard model's predictions could help physicists pick between the many proposed theories that aim to fix the standard model. Well, there's a feature out this week about this second approach, which has been getting more and more attention in recent years. Gerald has long been working on these precise measurements, so I called him up to find out more about physicists' hunt for cracks in the standard model. The thing that gets the most publicity these days is, is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Um, that's certainly one way to do it. There you take two particles, you smash them together with uh, as much energy as you can, and you see what bits fly out, and you analyze the bits. There's another approach, which I more represent, to say, what does the standard model predict precisely? And then let's make a measurement to see if indeed the prediction is correct. So uh, in my group, we've done that. 
We took the most precise prediction of the standard model, which is the size of the magnetism of an electron, a single particle, and we made a measurement, the most precise measurement ever made of a property of an elementary particle, and by George, the standard model was right to 12 significant figures. If the standard model and proposed fixes to the standard model make very different predictions, then it's a great place for experimenters like me to go and look and let nature decide what the truth is, because after all, nature always has the last word. They sound like very different uh, ways of searching for things beyond the standard model. One smashing particles together, the other very precisely measuring properties of a particle. In terms of what the experiments actually physically look like, do, do they look very different as well? Oh, they look tremendously different. Uh, if you've ever been in the LHC tunnel at CERN, it's spectacular. It's this big round tunnel that if you stand in it, it looks kind of straight because, uh, you know, its circumference is so enormous. And uh, well, my new center is called the Center for Fundamental Physics with tabletop experiments. Now, tabletop is a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, idealization because it's uh, sometimes the table's a little bit big, <laughs> but the scale is something that you know can fit in a university laboratory. So it's just just a smaller scale experiment, tabletop versus industrial scale. Uh, has more attention started being paid to these kinds of? tabletop experiments in recent years since the LHC hasn't really been finding anything unexpected? Even if the LHC finds things, the scale of these large accelerator projects and the budget is are so enormous that it takes, you know, decades to, uh, to, to make a new machine. So, you know, I think increasingly uh, people who are working at the LHC or, or their type are going to start using more tabletop approaches, substituting precision for energy. But one type of experiment, I would say, is not a direct substitute for the other. I reg regard us as being part, you know, part of the same enterprise, having similar goals and taking different approaches. And uh, you know, what we learn comp complements uh, each other. What's it like to really try and study one aspect of, say, an electron incredibly precisely, is it laborious? Well, every, every job is partly laborious, every experiment is, but I would say mostly it's just fun. I mean, just imagine, we, we can take one electron and we can suspend it by itself for months at a time while we play with it. You know, you get kind of fond of it after a while. For me, I still get excited uh, by seeing that. What's the longest uh, you've managed to keep an electron in place? Uh, what, what's your current record? Well, we did it once for 10 months until uh, one of my associates made a mistake and clicked the frequency synthesizer knob one click too far. Were you sorry to see that 10-month uh, electron go? <laughs> well, this was a while ago. Yeah, I was sorry. I was, uh, <laughs> I was uh, looking forward to having a one-year birthday party for it. For quite some time, everyone's been hunting for, for some gap in the standard model, some chink in its armor. Do you think there's any possibility that we just won't find anything? Well, I suppose there's always that possibility. That's not the possibility that motivates us. I guess if I were a sea captain years ago, there would be a possibility I could sail into the ocean and never find anything, but I might have tried it anyway. 
um, I think many of us take that same approach here. That's what we'd like to do. That was Gerald Gabriels, who's at Northwestern University in the United States. For more on the quest to find new physics with tabletop experiments, check out the feature. That's at nature.com forward slash news. And to hear from more physicists who are making minute measurements to look for errors in the standard model, give our piece on antimatter a listen. That was in the show from the 3rd of August 2017. So it's time now then for the first news chat of 2018. And I'm joined here in the studio by Lizzie Gibney, a senior reporter here at Nature. And for the past few years, Lizzie has been collating and maybe looking forward to sort of the year in science. And this year is no different. Um, Lizzie, welcome. Hi, hello. My first question to you then is, how can you possibly pick out some of the highlights and things that you think might happen this year? So the way that I tend to do this story every year, and can I just say this is a really fun task to do, and why it's so enjoyable is we have at Nature lots of different great reporters and we have the journal editors. And what we do is we just mine their brains, really, and we look for general research trends. We've got a lot of our reporters who are out and about at conferences, so there may be something that they have up their sleeve that they've heard about that they think might happen in the coming year. And then in some topics, it's a lot easier if it's, for instance, a a space launch or something, then that's down on a schedule. So barring something going wrong, they do usually happen. Um, So some of it is is tracking what we're already paying attention to. And some of it is looking at what we think might emerge in the following year. Well, speaking of space there and space launches, I think the moon got quite a lot of coverage in there in this year's predictions list. Maybe let's start with the Google Lunar X competition, which I believe the deadline for is March the 31st. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. That's right. So these teams are competing to be the first privately funded rover on the moon. And they don't just have to go to the moon. They have to land, travel for 500 metres and then beam back some images. And as you might imagine to date, that's only been done by national space agencies. So this would be quite an achievement. Now, they've had a number of extensions, but according to the XPRIZE, this really is the last one. The deadline is the 31st of March. So I think definitely four out of five have committed to launches. So we'll see how many of them make it, how many of them get partial prizes for getting some mini milestones along the way, and then if any actually manage to achieve it. So if that's then maybe a sort of a private competition, what are, what are governments themselves doing in the, in the lunar sphere? Well, yeah, the moon is is hot again, which is great. I, I think that's a brilliant thing. So NASA is going to have to respond to uh, President Trump's order to send astronauts to the moon, which came late last year. And then there are two other space agencies who are sending rovers. India will send Chandrayaan-2, which is a follow-up to Chandrayaan-1. And that will be the first time it's actually going to try a controlled landing. So it will have a, a rover that works once it gets there. And then China will also send actually two probes, one of which is going to be an orbiter and the other is going to land hopefully for the first time on the far side of the moon which would be very exciting because it's a very unexplored area. All right let's look even sort of further out into space then and uh, I understand that Canadian researchers are uh, chiming in on uh, mysterious fast radio bursts. Yes lovely pun there. So this is a radio telescope based in Canada and originally it was supposed to be looking just at the very early universe looking for very faint radio signals but in the interim these fast radio bursts have been discovered which are very mysterious, short and um, often just one-off blasts that we see and that have been very, very difficult to explain. But it's been rejigged a little bit so now hopefully it should be able to see perhaps dozens of these fast radio bursts a day. To date we've only seen about 20 or 30 in total so this will make a huge difference. 
Okay, so if they are so kind of few and far between, what will they actually tell us? Well, as you can imagine, if we've only seen such a small sample size so far, it's very hard to know what the general characteristics are of these bursts. And knowing more should tell us about the general population. At the moment, we don't know if we're just seeing particular ends of a spectrum or where they're coming from. They look like they're coming from all over the sky, but perhaps there is some concentration in some areas versus some others. This is just going to blow the whole thing out of the water. We're going to ramp up the numbers we've got by an enormous extent and just that sheer amount of data should be able to show us some patterns that will maybe stop them being quite so mysterious. So let's maybe come back down to Earth then for a little bit. 2017 was quite the tumultuous year for sort of climate change science. How is 2018 looking? Well, so 2018 will be in part about working towards 2020, which is going to be the next big UN climate meeting. Um, So countries at the moment, um, those that have signed on to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, are going to be looking at their progress towards commitments and looking towards how they might update their commitments in 2020. And of course, what they've committed to doing is keeping um, the world average temperature to below 2 degrees and if possible 1.5 degrees. What's also going to happen this year is that there'll be a special report on exactly what the consequences will be of such a 1.5 degree temperature increase. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And then another particularly interesting thing that we pulled out was that there's going to be a big climate meeting in the States, which is kind of interesting because, of course, President Trump has committed to uh, pulling the US out of the all-important Paris Agreement. But this is uh, Jerry Brown, the governor of California, has um, in some ways taken up the mantle of, of climate leadership over there and is having this huge conference that's supporting uh, the Paris Agreement and saying the US isn't going to be out entirely because there are lots of states and lots of scientists and people who are well behind it. Okay then Lizzie, well so what about health then? What stories uh, have you picked out as maybe being important this year? Well, CRISPR, the gene editing tool that I'm sure everybody knows about, is going to continue to be very hot this year. And in particular, the first human study that uses CRISPR, in this case, to edit immune cells in order to tackle lung cancer, is set to conclude in April. So eyes peeled for that. Um, There's going to be a lot of work towards um, engineering viruses that are called bacteriophages, which use CRISPR to kill uh, or potentially, hopefully kill, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And there's also going to be a trial using uh, induced pluripotent stem cells to treat Parkinson's disease. So there's going to be quite a few exciting clinical trials that should hopefully wrap up by the end of the year. So look out for those. So if they're all kind of clinical-based studies, do we have anything more fundamental coming out? Absolutely, yeah. So in particular in genomics, we're hoping that this year when we have the first large-scale multiple cancer sequencing genomes studied, so these are big efforts that have been going on for for many years, that's going to bring some insights into the genes that control cancer and uh, and the evolution of, of cancer. And in particular, there's also going to be the final results of an effort from the Cancer Genome Atlas that will look at the protein coding regions, which is the exome, across a whole host of different tumours. I think it's going to be 32. So these are really big, multiple cancer sequencing efforts um, that we hope will uh, will reveal some really important insights. Um, but what about you yourself then, Lizzie? Anything that stood out to you? What, what excites you the most about this year? Well, ooh, I mean, there are so many things. But I would say what I would like to pull out, because it's uh, dear to my heart, is uh, an advance in accelerator physics. So as you will definitely know, 
Colliders are massive, usually. The Large Hadron Collider is 27 kilometres in circumference. But there's a really intriguing way to possibly accelerate particles across much shorter distances that they're trialling at the moment at many places, but including CERN, which is trying a particular technique. And what they are attempting to do is essentially surf electrons on a wave of plasma. And they uh, it's, it's, it's quite out there, but they last year managed to show that the principle does work And this year, they're actually going to put electrons into the machine and see if it does work as hoped. So if we can get electrons to hang 10 and surf, then what does that mean for physics? Well, that means that we should hopefully be able to keep increasing the energy of our colliders whilst not increasing the price because we can make them in shorter spaces. Wow, we have covered a lot of ground there. Um, Listeners, you can find the full list over at nature.com forward slash news. And Lizzie, we'll need to get you back in the studio in about a year, I guess, to find out how your predictions went. Yes, I hope so. Looking forward to it. Well, that's it for this week. But before we go, there's just time to tell you about the Nature Middle East podcast. This month, host Pekanam Ima goes on a journey through the lush mangrove forests of the Arab world and meets a painter who's trying to save these natural carbon sinks through her art. Find the Nature Middle East podcast wherever you get your pods. And while you're subscribing to that, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. We've also got a great YouTube channel and we've just published an animation on artificial photosynthesis and how it could help in the fight against climate change. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.